Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nessen Birmingham. Today, we're talking to Tim Yu. Tim is attending physician at the Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. The scope of work that Tim does is well beyond what can be covered in this intro. However, I've gotten to know Tim through his leading the emerging field of N of 1 plus drugs. Tim worked with Julia Vitorello to develop myelicin, leading the way in truly personalized therapeutics. Please join me in welcoming Tim to the podcast. Tim, it's great to have you on the podcast today. So just for our listeners, you know, how you and I know each other really is around the work that you've been doing, which really is phenomenal on the N of 1 sort of therapeutic approach. So the concept of a bespoke therapy, patient-specific. Uh, clearly, you've been a leader in the field around that, and that's how we connected. You know, but you have a storied history in multiple areas, and that leads you to the point that you are today. I want to get to the N of 1s, but you know, could we start with... Who are you? How did you get to your role today? And you, you wear multiple hats. So can you talk us through that? <laughs> thanks so much, Nessa. And thanks for this chance to sit down with you today. And, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to see, seeing where the conversation goes. So um, sure, uh, where, where to start? Where to start? Um, it, it has been a pleasure getting to know you through this N of One journey uh, over the last several years, trying to think about what to do with this tremendous opportunity. But maybe to set it in context, um, Oh, where to begin? Um, I actually, uh, well, I began my career um, as an MD-PhD uh, student at UC San Francisco. Um, and uh, back then I was really entranced by the idea of using genomics to better understand how basic biology works, uh, in particular, how the, how the brain works. Uh, and a lot of uh, my interest was uh, driven by this uh, idea that you could actually break things down into rational steps um, by understanding all the component parts uh, for something as, as mysterious as how our brain works. Um, to do this, we were really taking a very reductionist approach. I did my PhD with Corey Bargman, and we were uh, working to understand basic um, the basic toolkit by which the genome encodes um, switches and levers to construct a brain, um, beginning with the very simple observation that the brain is uh, consists of connections that uh, are incredibly intricate, but at their uh, root have to start at point A and go to B, go to point B. And so the question I was trying to understand was, uh, how does a brain connection that this, these connections, this network of connections that, that subserves something as simple as um, speaking the words I'm speaking uh, at this moment, uh, how are those connections made? How do you know uh, where a, a connection is supposed to form? How you uh, know uh, uh, which parts of the brain a connection is not supposed to traverse towards? Um, and uh, and that was the the elemental building block problem that I studied in, in graduate school. Why am I going all the way that far back? Well, <laughs> the, the point I think is that it turned out that the answer, the way to answer this really uh, uh, elementary question was through genetics. Mm -hmm. um, and we were dealing with, in an era where C. elegans was the first um, multicellular organism to have its genome completely deduced. And uh, the lessons and the connection to the work that I'm doing today that I think drew me to begin talking about this, uh, really focused on the fact that, that um, when you understand the genetic blueprint, you can uh, figure out, you can use this to figure out um, how the machine works. Uh, 
what genes are required to make neurons connect from point A to point B. Um, and then you can also use that same information to um, change how the system works. Um, you can do that for experimental purposes, or you can do that for therapeutic purposes. But it all begins with having that first map, having that map of um, the uh, the thousands of genes that are required uh, to um, to build an organism. Um, and then uh, from there, you just have all sorts of uh, opportunities at your disposal. So where, How about that? Back, I, you, know, I, <laughs> I, you know, look, I think we all, like you kind of think about it, right? That we all kind of very attracted to the power, right, of human genetics and our, our, our understanding of the implications, both from a development standpoint, but also obviously within a disease setting. Lofty goal. But the reality is we really haven't been very, at least from my perspective, for CNS, right? And obviously, you, like, you look at the areas you're working on, you know, autism, neurodevelopment, you know, other genetic disorders. Um, we haven't been particularly successful to date, right? And why, in your mind, like, what have been the sticking blocks? You know, I think we looked at Drosophila, C. elegans, we looked at mice, right? And tried to infer from that what was actually going on from a human standpoint. And I'm not sure that we've seen that translation for more complex uh, disorders or more complex pathways, where are we? And autism is a great example of this. So where are we when we think about this? Right, right, perfect. So, so I think that uh, I think that you know my journey took me on from the uh, beginning with this very very reduction system uh, in C. elegans and how how genes encode the con the construction of the brain. Um, from there, I went on to try to apply this towards human genetics, and it gets much much more complicated. Um, in, in C. elegans, you can uh, you can do things like look. It's an, uh, essentially an invisible creature. When something goes wrong, you can actually be very precise about what's not happening. If a particular cell is not being born, if a particular connection is not being made, you can visualize that. Um, but now, when you try to take these lessons and these uh, these tools and apply them to human disease, it's a lot more opaque. Uh, my uh, I cut my teeth in human genetics uh, trying to tackle a very challenging problem, which is autism. Um, and autism is a clinical construct. It's something that we define based off of how a child does in the family, uh, in the home, uh, in, the, in school, uh, based off of social constructs, as well as elementary uh, human interpersonal relations constructs. And so it's the definition of autism um, is that it's a syndrome involving uh, impairments in our ability to communicate, uh, in our ability uh, to uh, express ourselves um, and our, our ability to relate to each to others, and also um, there's a predilection towards uh, repetitive behaviors. Right? And none of what the components of the, none of the components of that of that definition are observable under a microscope. Mm -hmm. it, it's uh, these are real, very human concepts. So the big challenge in autism has been to how how do you go with uh, from a condition that is designed that is defined in relatively fuzzy ways um, towards understanding. And that's where genetics has really um, um, has begun to shed light. In the last uh, 10 years, the beginning of my career in human genetics was devoted towards this concept that even though we don't have a really precise handle on how to define autism, the genetics would create a path towards refining that, improving it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we've made significant progress towards that. I think that beginning uh, beginning 15 years ago, 
uh, we began to realize that you could take something complicated and fuzzy like autism and um, pick apart the genetic architecture by sequencing enough patients. And now we're able to find in maybe 25% of cases, a single gene mutation, which seems to be the main um, driver of autism in individuals. And even though that doesn't um, uh, immediately uh, uh, lead to uh, uh, like treatments or, or, or uh, it does help with understanding and because it gives us one, one extra foothold what does that gene do? In which parts of the brain is it expressed? At what times are, are, are expressed? We've learned very elementary things, like uh, obviously that, that many autism genes are expressed during fetal development um, and that they're involved in um, how cells talk to one another um, and how their gene expression networks respond to, um, to uh, activity uh, and, uh, and crosstalk between neurons. Um, these are admittedly very elementary lessons, but they are giving us the beginning of a handle as to how to describe it better. Um, and they are now beginning to give us um, toeholds for treatment. In a couple of cases, uh, some autism genes, even though we haven't worked out exactly what they do, they now uh, present prospects for uh, trying to correct the underlying uh, molecular genetic defect. And uh, it's probable that uh, we'll learn from every single one of those efforts a little bit more about how the whole mechanism works in the first place. Um, is that going to be reversal, though? You know, is it, you know, when you think about therapeutic intervention, is it an expectation of a reversal? Is it an expectation of, you know, prevention of further deterioration or further changes, right, within the CNS? Or is it a case of realistically, you, it's, it's, it's going to have to be fetal therapy? And we gotta, we've got to crack that aspect as we think about drug development uh, for therapeutic intervention here. So diagnostic and then fetal therapy. That's a critical question. And, and, and the cool thing is that we are beginning to learn uh, some, uh, uh, some answers to that question. Um, so there are many autism genes that uh, seem to be involved in very early stages of brain development, uh, that they might be involved in uh, generating the size of the brain, controlling the size of the brain, uh, controlling something as elemental as how many neurons there are within the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and um, mistakes in those genetic pathways can fundamentally alter the anatomy of the brain in such a way that you really don't expect it to be easily reversible. On the other hand, some of this genetic discovery has also led us to find other genes, um, one called CAMK2 uh, in particular, um, that comes to mind, um, that uh, are involved in much later stages of brain, brain development. Um, it's not so much involved in setting the uh, fundamental architecture of the brain, the anatomy of the brain, but it's actually, um, it regulates uh, how quickly neurons learn from one another. Mm -hmm. and, these are so-called plasticity genes um, that now have allowed us to model how they might work using uh, animals like mice um, and have begun to allow us to do experiments to answer that really critical question. Uh, if you were to have a mouse, for instance, with a defect in CAMK2, um, and if you were to then correct that defect in adult mouse, um, would you correct the underlying cognitive uh, right. in that mouse. 
And the answer is that for CAMP2 and a few other cases, uh, that it, experiments in animals seem to suggest that you possibly could reverse those changes, even in adulthood. So th this kind of foothold does begin to allow us to think about uh, whether that might be true in, in children uh, as well, that, uh, the, uh, that you might be able to improve the lives, uh, the quality of lives, uh, communication, uh, social relations, and, and other aspects uh, of children uh, who have that specific genetic disorder, um, even, uh, at, say, uh, in an older child. Um, so I think that uh, those are unproven that clinically at, at this point, but now because we have some of these uh, genes named and we've had the chance to uh, do some of these uh, experimental uh, probes in, in animals that, that it's not unrealistic to, to, uh, to, to try to not, to try this in, in trials too. And as we, as we look at the, the prevalence of things like autism or more complex uh, disorders, are, is it, is it a diagnostic? We're seeing, we're seeing more and more be diagnosed. Is that a diagnostic criteria understanding or an understanding of how to diagnose the disease or actually are we seeing within the general population actual increase overall within these types of diseases or disorders? Yeah. It, it's, it's a really good question. And, and it's something that uh, the field's wrestling with for a long time. I, I, I think that the general consensus in the field, and I agree with this, is that it, it's likely uh, a bit of the, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. uh, that as we're able to provide answers to families who are trying to understand um, why uh, their child may or may not be quote unquote neurotypical, um, as we are able to come up with better and better answers. And the answers that we are that we have available to us still you know, need a lot of improvement. But we're able to actually offer families some answers. I think that more and more individuals are then motivated to um, look for a diagnosis, mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to, to have that first clinical diagnosis of autism uh, uh, established, uh, and then for appropriate testing to be done. Um, I think that that seems to be the main driver here. Got it, okay. Genetic testing for you is another area that you spend or you seem to spend a reasonable amount of time, not only as you look at it from a patient-centric standpoint, but also my suspicion is as you think about the longer-term implications from a human population standpoint, right? You know, you look at whole genome sequencing, the actual diagnostic criteria or diagnostic power or potential power of that, given background, et cetera. You know, as, we're, as we continue to move you know, forward and get a much better understanding and earlier detection. Where do you see genetic testing actually ultimately going? How do you think about the impact both from, uh, uh, you know, preventative care, but also as we look at a pretty challenging insurance structure that's in place today and the implications of actually having that data from, from a patient-centric standpoint? Right. Um, I think that um, in, in many ways as a physician scientist, uh, it's absolutely legitimate to be incredibly frustrated by how slow the uptake of, of uh, reimbursement for genetic testing has been over the last 10 years. Um, I think it's, it's, it's very understandable because we're impatient. We want, uh, for, for those of us who've been lucky enough to be on the bleeding edge of this and see how powerful it is first in research studies and then in clinical research studies, and now increasingly, but still not enough, in the actual clinic, as in without the word research attached to it. Um, you just can't help but want it to be available to everybody as quickly as possible. I suppose, though, that if you take a longer view, 
it is fair also to say that this we're dealing with a t- technology that uh, 25 years ago did cost $3 billion to sequence the first human genome. Uh, and then, you know, by the time around 2009 to 2010, sequencing a human genome was still costing about $20,000. And, and the, now there are machines that can do it for $200. So I suppose allowing ourselves a little bit of historical perspective, one could say that it's not entirely surprising that our, uh, that our insurance system hasn't quite caught up yet. Uh, but still, I think we're allowed to be impatient. Um, I do think that there's a lot of um, uh, there is a lot of education that's still required, I and mean, even among physicians, um, I think genetics uh, for many folks was something that they learned in, in, in medical school uh, and then um, didn't have a whole lot of practical use for uh, for decades after. And so there is a, a bit of a sense of uh, uncertainty about the unknown um, and uh, a sense that well. Uh, that these tests are fraught with uh, uh, genetic counseling challenges and so forth. And there are genetic counseling uh, challenges that, that arise in the, in the course of offering genetic, uh, genetic diagnoses to more people. Um, but I think by and large, um, as physicians get more comfortable with it, uh, we'll be able to educate families as to how to be more comfortable with it as well. Um, and it will be less of a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think that there are unknowns that come out of any, I think a big fear uh, that seems to current uh, limit deployment of, of testing is the a fear of uncertainty, fearing of having results that um, could be scary, but actually might mean, not, mean nothing. And um, I one can simultaneously acknowledge that that situation, that uncertainty is a very common um, result from a genetic test. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but one can also be okay with that. It doesn't have to be scary. And I think that as we get more used to the more widespread use of this genetic testing, uh, people will become more comfortable with uncertainty. I think there's a, there's a concern that, that some genetic tests could uh, be like going to the fortune teller at, uh, at a carnival and getting a ticket uh, saying that, uh, you, that you are at risk of some horrible uh, 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 fate in the next 15 years, um, knowing that, that that ticket is uh, likely hogwash, right? Um, I think that people will learn to kind of develop a thicker skin around uncertainty um, and to be able to um, you know, not be over um, overstressed by it. And, but that, that requires physicians to, to uh, that has to happen with physicians and clinicians first. Um, who are so that they can appropriately communicate that to their patients. Doesn't ever feel like they have the time or the bandwidth for it. Not that they have the interest intellectually, you know, I, I would say pay from a patient supporting and helping their patients. It's all there. Bandwidth, you know, seems to be a big limitation. And, and I, you know, there are times that I worry about it, not only as you look at it from a pure diagnostic standpoint, um, but also as you think about any new therapeutic modality that's coming through and the potential implications, both beneficial and potentially non-beneficial to a patient uh, as you look at it. Um, where Have you any thoughts on where we could optimize the system or where we might be going wrong as we think about still enabling an actual physician to continue to actually learn, continue to actually stay abreast of what's actually going on and, act- and have the time and the mental capacity to be able to take that in? 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really critical question. I mean, the, the, the size of medical genetics training programs doesn't come close to meeting the need out there. Um, and I think that there are probably two, uh, at least two components to the answer. One is that um, that this type of education can't just occur within medical clinical genetics as a specialty. Uh, genetics is something which is permeating every single field, every single uh, subspecialty. In fact, at Boston Children's, um, we uh, initiated a program to uh, educate uh, physicians about uh, uh, the use of exome and genome testing, both at a research level and also at a, at a, a patient counseling level. And uh, what was remarkable was that uh, that there was uptake across every single department of the of the hospital. I, physicians were hungry to uh, learn about this from everything from genetics and neurology, which are maybe two of the places where you automatically think about using genetics, or maybe developmental medicine but all the way extending out to, uh, to orthopedic surgery. Um, and it's just critical. It, it's just amazing how, how, how um, it influences every specialty. So part of it, I think, is that th there is this, uh, this need for cross-training across mm -hmm. um, for that to increase uptake. The second piece is that uh, everyone has recognized that genetic counselors are a hot commodity right now. And especially in this interim where it might take a full generation of medical students to come up through the system and to uh, get to the point where everybody in the medical training system has sufficient genetic literacy to the levels that our, that our patients deserve. But um, certainly um, genetic counseling uh, programs uh, have been incredibly valuable in filling that gap right now. They're, they're, they're an under, still un underutilized part of the the, the system. Every all the professionals in the field recognize their value, but but we still don't have enough of them, and I think that's right. where a lot of the capacity. Um, so, should, should. you know, shifting gears a little bit, you know, you are from a public standpoint best known for N of one drugs and being a big driver around that and the implications for it. you've been really at the forefront as you actually look at those sort of therapeutic approaches. You know the it would be great to hear the story from you, right? How you got, how you met Julia, how you ended up actually getting involved. Um, and you've now treated multiple other patients uh, following that. Um, let's start there. Because where I want to get to is let's talk about the actual viability and the considerations as you think about rolling this out on a much larger level to effectively every potential patient that's out there. And we're obviously going to have to touch on time to treat patient cost, as you and I have talked a lot about reimbursement, approval, et cetera. But let's just start with the history, right? How did you get involved into this space? Because this was not something I think at the start that you actually were even thinking about. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. And and, 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 and actually, I think it, um, I, I, like, I like pointing that out because um, there are times in science when some idea pops up that's so compelling that it, whether or not you've uh, feel uh, ownership of it, or whether it's been your pet project or not, you just feel like you have to jump, and that's how this happens. So let me. So yeah, I'd be happy to go through. Um, so uh, I started at Boston Children's in 2007, and I was uh, working on human genetics, and I, I was um, lucky to be one of the very first folks to apply next generation sequencing, exome and genome scale sequencing, to try to figure out the causes of genetic disorders. And really, over the next 10 years, from 2007 to 2017, 
Um, that's what I focused on. I focused on trying to use this uh, remarkable technology and the bioinformatics tools to develop bioinformatics tools to maximize uh, the what could be learned from this type of sequencing technology, um, and then to apply it to solve causes of human disease. And treatment was really not on my radar at all. Um, that all changed in 2017 because we were out there looking for new ways to solve difficult cases using uh, whole genome sequencing. Uh, and we encountered uh, a family in Colorado uh, who had just been diagnosed with uh, a devastating condition called Batten disease. And they'd received this clinical diagnosis because of the stellar work of their geneticist, Dr. Austin Larson at Colorado Children's. Um, but uh, Austin had uh, a challenge, which is that even though he had made the astute clinical diagnosis, that the genetic diagnosis was incomplete. They couldn't find the mutation. Mm -hmm. So we were out there trying to offer ways to use advanced sequencing technologies and advanced analyses to close the gap. We've, we'd known that there are patients out there for whom uh, their genetic mutations proved to be really difficult to find. And we wanted to show our technological chops to offer answers, to complete answers for those patients. Um, by applying the most advanced technology. And so we um, met this, we came across this case, uh, not with treatment in mind, but with diagnosis in mind. Um, and that's how this all started. Uh, we um, heard via Facebook about this partially diagnosed patient. Um, we had um, a route for doing expedited whole genome sequencing in our laboratory and applying advanced algorithms for uh, analyzing it to look for hidden mutations. Um, and we found it, we found one. Uh, we found that uh, in this patient, we uh, whole genome sequencing had looked in a part of the genome that had been missed by standard clinical sequencing. Uh, there was a deep intronic change um, and it was an exotic mutation. It wasn't a simple letter substitution than A to T or C to G or something like that but it was the insertion of a foreign piece of DNA into the gene, into, a, uh, into the intron of a gene. Um, that foreign piece of DNA had been copied and pasted from another part of the genome. Mm -hmm. um, this insertion, um, which is actually pretty devilishly tricky to find, um, turned out to be the cause of her condition. Um, and we were patting ourselves on the back uh, about being able to find that yeah, job uh, done. Like you're done. done. Went in, I'm uh, like, okay, this is great. Uh, this uh, unusual esoteric mutation uh, that we could trumpet it to all of our 15 closest genetics, genetics friends who would care about our ability to solve this, te this technolo technological problem um, and, and report it out. Um, when it dawned on us that, that actually uh, this type of mutation had a very unusual um, mechanism of action, that because it was deep in an intron, it actually left all of the normal protein coding portions of the gene, the important parts of the gene, intact. And it got us to thinking, gosh, you know, we have this um, foreign DNA sequence inserted into a part of the gene that shouldn't matter, but every other part of the gene that does matter still exists. Uh, what if we could reactivate the parts of the gene that do matter um, by suppressing this foreign, uh, the, the effects of this foreign intruding DNA? And that was the fundamental uh, idea that led us down this path of, uh, of intervention 
um, and individualized medicine. So you looked at the, looked at it, said that it's amenable to this approach, and then what happened? Because this is when you start thinking about the FDA, you start thinking about the design, the implementation of it, dosing, all the things you and I have talked about. How did you go from that observation to effectively drug in inpatient? So um, we were thinking about this idea from a conceptual standpoint at first. We said, oh, you know, this is an, what, what's this thing doing? How could it be? Uh, could it be uh, interrupting the function of the gene? And and we had hypothesized that it was changing the splicing of the gene, and, and we'd shown that that actually was the case. Uh, but then to actually think about, well, you know, is this actually fixable? Like in concept, right? It, it's it's interesting that that the business part of the gene remains intact, um, but how would we actually suppress this this uh, foreign insertion? Um, we first looked to the Duchenne's field, um, and in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh, we were aware uh, that um, th this is a field in which uh, clever scientists had devised a way to skip over certain uh, protein coding portions of the dystrophin gene uh, in order to create uh, versions of the protein that uh, were, if not perfect copies of the original, uh, they were still better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's a technology called exon skipping uh, using a, a type of drug called a morpholino. Um, it turned out that uh, Lou Kunkel, um, the grandfather of the Duchenne's field who had cloned the gene uh, decades before, uh, was upstairs from my lab. So I walked upstairs and I said, Lou, tell me about this exon skipping strategy, because I know that uh, you've advised uh, several companies as to how to implement it uh, for Duchenne's. And he said, well, you know, um, this is a, a really promising strategy. Um, and I can connect you to Sarepta uh, and a few other companies that are trying to advance it into patients. Um, but he said, uh, one of the challenges though, is that uh, in order to advance this for a patient, um, you're gonna have to find, you're gonna have to do all the work for them. Uh, you're gonna have to uh, devise the drug, uh, prototype the drug, um, and then see whether they not, uh, uh, show that it works um, and then uh, bring it to them as a fait accompli and, and ask them to see if they might be able to, to be willing to help you to uh, to advance. Um, so at his advice, I began thinking about whether we could do that. And as I um, began reading more about the situation, I realized that it actually would be relatively simple to try to use these tools to, to, to demonstrate a proof of concept. Um, we just needed a, 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 an assay system in which to, to test our drug. Um, and we thought, well, what better assay system than our patient's cell lines? So we asked uh, the family of our patient uh, for a small skin punch and used that to begin to develop an experimental assay to try to develop this drug. Along the way, uh, we realized uh, that uh, the morpholino technology that uh, Lou uh, had uh, advised us about mm -hmm. might actually not be the best uh, uh, chemistry to use. Uh, because there was an, another chemistry called uh, antisense oligonucleotides um, that had been just demonstrated to work for spinal muscular atrophy. And this is a, a very, very similar idea, just a, a different chemical modified structure. Um, so we hopped onto that train, uh, called up uh, Richard Finkel, one of the lead clinical investigators of the ASO drug for spinal muscular atrophy, we called up Frank Bennett, uh, the scientific architect of the drug at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, 
um, and asked them for suggestions as to whether or not they thought we were crazy or not. And uh, no one, to their credit, said that we were crazy. They just said it would be incredibly, incredibly difficult and that it hadn't been done before. So, um, but that was the genesis of the idea, the genesis of the concept that that uh, folks said that there was a scientific route here to, in principle, demonstrate their proof of concept drug, but no one was really quite sure whether or not we would ever be able to use it. Mm -hmm. We started out saying, well, half of the solution is better than none. So let's at least start working on the proof of concept just to right. see if this idea could work. And in the meantime, um, let's begin thinking about whether we think it's right to actually propose this to the patient. We got started on the first part and I asked our team to begin developing the drug. And I just, I spent a lot of time meditating about the second piece. You know, would it actually be appropriate to try to propose uh, an investigational experimental treatment uh, born out of a, a laboratory academic exercise? And thinking with not my scientist hat, but with my physician hat and my maybe as a father hat, I just became con increasingly convinced that, that, um, that this was, a, this was a condition that was inexorably progressive, um, rapidly fatal in a few years. Well before it was fatal, it would uh, rob the child involved of uh, her vision had already been lost, but her ability to communicate, her ability to swallow, her ability to interact meaningfully with her parents at all, her ability to walk. Um, and as a neurologist, we take care of too many kids like this. Mm -hmm. um, and given just the very clear implications of, of, of not trying this experimental approach. There were no other uh, drugs, investigational or otherwise, for this condition. Um, we became increasingly convinced that we needed to, uh, that, that it was appropriate to actually uh, to contemplate an experimental treatment uh, in these circumstances. So moving into that, and actually getting a drug that you that that you know as, as you think about overall manufacturing so CMC being able to qualify it inject um, or infuse the timing so time is obviously a critical element here right you have an individual that's deteriorating in real time right so you've mm -hmm. got to move as quickly as you possibly can but also you've got to think about safety toxicity you've got to think about doing it right so you're you're trying to thread the proverbial needle here and and doing doing the best thing, and you've got cost associated with this. These are very expensive things, as you and I both know, to actually do. Yes. So you know, how did you how did you navigate those those elements? So the beautiful thing was that uh, we could actually get a lot of work done on a relatively uh, with a relatively small budget in the beginning. Um, at that point, uh, I was fortunate to have. I uh, saved up a significant amount of my startup funds from my uh, launching my laboratory at Boston Children's Hospital. And we were able to commit to this academic idea of uh, trying to develop a prototype drug. Um, and the cost of, of doing these types of experiments, the skin punch biopsies, the, the fibroblast cultures, even the antisense olivinucleotide, the prototype drug manufacturing at an experimental level were actually uh, what permitted, they're, they're very low. And that's what permitted us to, to do this um, to float this project uh, as, uh, as a concept. And the science went really fast. The science went unreasonably fast. Like uh, everything that we did following the literature laid down by folks like Adrian Craner, Frank Rigo, um, uh, the, a number of folks who had, uh, who had pioneered this type of path for, for an ASO for spinal muscular atrophy. 
um, the actual molecular biology proved to be straightforward. Um, and so within about two months, we were able to get a drug without too much expenditure uh, that looked like it was working in a dish uh, with the help of our colleagues at Northwestern, Joe Mazzulli. Uh, we showed that it was working not just at the RNA level, but also at the uh, cell biological level, uh, rescuing lysosomal function um, in patient cells. It really went, I fair to say, unreasonably fast. Like science usually doesn't, isn't lucky enough, that, one usually isn't lucky enough that, that things work uh, this well. Our team was working under a real sense of urgency. Uh, we said, you know, we're going to run this not as a standard, you know, academic project, but we do want to run fast because um, we knew the time was of the essence. But, uh, but it, yeah, it, it, it really did happen very, very quickly. We did reach a point, though, where now to get into actual drug development costs and to assess safety and to do clinical grade manufacturing, we needed help. And here, you know, what we had already done by this point was pulled every scrap of literature, both in the uh, in PubMed, the academic literature, and also in regulatory filings, um, that we could about Spinraza, the drug for mm -hmm. spondylosis. And what I was impressed by was that the uh, the type of safety testing that was performed um, appeared to be understandable um, and and reasonable, uh, reasonably monitorable using uh, in uh, relatively simple conceptually simple animal experiments. Um, and this allowed us to then it gave us kind of the fortitude to say, well, you know, maybe we should. Um, that, uh, that I think we could replicate these experiments. Um, we were very fortunate um, as we got into the more serious business of manufacturing and safety uh, to pull in advisors. Um, Ionis was able to help uh, and they provided great overall scientific uh, input and feedback, uh, but they were limited as to what they were able to do as a company and their liability and the risks involved. Mm -hmm. um, but we were able to bring in outside independent uh, counsel, so to speak. Uh, we were uh, fortunate to connect to the Oligotherapeutic Society. Arthur Krieg was the president at the time. And he um, provided a lot of uh, advice from his own uh, personal experience, but uh, just as importantly, connected us to many folks in that wide field who were incredibly generous, uh, donating manufacturing advice, um, safety testing advice, and so forth. Um, and amongst those were uh, Lauren Black uh, mm -hmm. and Pendergast, who were two ex-FDA veterans uh, who provided regulatory and toxicology advice. Lauren had actually provided the, uh, 20 years prior, had actually helped draft the, the FDA's guidance on oligo safety, uh, where she was one of the main driving uh, members of the oligo safety working group and had published on ASO safety before. She is unbelievable. I've worked with her multiple <laughs> times. She really is great, as is art. Yeah, art of is course. phenomenal. She's, of course, art is as well. Folks on the manufacturing side, um, Fran Wincott, uh, uh, Sarah Srivastava, uh, Max Moore, uh, Craig Dobbs, all folks with uh, decades of industry experience on manufacturing, uh, they were able to counsel us through through that piece of it, which was the newest piece mm -hmm. to me. I had really no idea how the, exactly the chemistry uh, and the uh, process controls needed to work. Uh, but they were able to reassure us that it was not as difficult that it looked, and they provided really valuable you know, uh, um, suggestions for actually how to 
design a reasonable uh, and um, sufficiently conservative but fast enough uh, manufacturing campaign. Um, I think that you know all of this really came together with lots of people, and there are many other people who, whose mm-hmm. input that uh, I could go on and on, but it was a real team effort. And people um, were incredibly generous with their expertise. Um, and I just got to learn it all. It was, it was uh, it, it, a really remarkable experience. Um, we were championing this effort on the behalf of a child who uh, had, was, were, uh, had no other options and people were really motivated to help. That's great. It, it must have been very rewarding, but also nerve wracking when you were actually treating for the first time, right? Is that? Sure. And as you think about, you know, the progression you've now moved into and started, you know, and we've been working together on it also, you know, looking at ways to allow us to start to do this in a more targeted and a much broader with a process in place to enable it. Where do, where do you think we are in that spectrum? You know, where do you think we are in realizing this idea about N of one, or we've talked a little bit more now of N of one plus, because it seems like when you identify a mutation similar to what you were talking about from a diagnostic standpoint, you more and more patients actually start to present that the drug may be applicable or relevant to. So where do we sit and stand in all of this uh, today? Yes. Um, it, this is, it's been a really remarkable couple of years. I, I think that, uh, where do we stand? I think that um, in the original Mielsen effort, the original Mielsen effort was truly, um, truly embarked upon as a compassionate use effort, where we were all motivated to move as fast as possible uh, with uh, pulling every scrap of information available to us to try to do it as safely as possible. Um, uh, but there was uh, an urgency to it that, um, and a, a freshness and a newness to it, which is uh, hard to engineer for, mm-hmm. um, and and may not appropriate always to engineer for in, in every in every case to follow. I think that um, it's been really gratifying to see this path um, and using the same ethical, scientific, and clinical logic uh, applied to many other cases, uh, often in the same compassionate use framework of patients with uh, progressive fatal conditions like, AM, like ALS. Uh, several patients have been treated. Um, we, we've advanced programs for uh, other fatal conditions like uh, ataxia telangiectasia and casein T1 epilepsy. And um, I think that, and there are dozens of other cases um, cooking along these same lines. Um, it's been incredibly gratifying and surprising how, how quickly this has expanded. And I think where we are now in the in, in this next phase is um, really now working hard to try to apply maximum rigor to the process, so that we can make sure that the uh, that we maintain the pace and the speed and the tempo. But the risks that we're taking on are proportionate to the severity of the diseases that we're trying to treat, but. Folks are now working really hard on the next level questions. How do we, at what point will we know enough about this process to be able to say that it works or that it doesn't? And what are the stages in which we need to do that? Um, How do we break this problem down? It's a fundamental and seemingly impossible challenge to say, well, how do you build uh, an evidentiary base with an N of one? Mm 
one patient. When our standard uh, gold, when our gold standard is randomized placebo-controlled, you know, double-blind trials, right? Um, how do you go from there to here? It seems almost impossible. But I think folks are giving this challenging problem a really, really um, hard look. Uh, part of the answer is uh, capturing richer data and repeated measures and in individuals um, can show uh, trends in ways that may be more compelling than, say, uh, than um, less rich, less longitudinal data. Um, finding and optimizing outcomes that um, uh, that are truly patient relevant, that that are closely tied to patient quality of life, um, that's another piece of it. I think from a clinical trial design standpoint, uh, finding ways to uh, coordinate across multiple investigators, multiple sponsors, multiple sites, so that um, trials can be aggregated and uh, results can be harmonized. Um, it's going to take that level, a certain level of meta-analysis to uh, generate the data necessary to say if this approach works. Um, last, I think breaking down the approach into small steps, uh, focusing on safety first, uh, making sure that these types of interventions are well tolerated as the first most important uh, thing to establish. And then as quickly as possible, uh, establishing uh, whether or not uh, there's uh, efficacy in finding the right groupings of patients to, to do that, grouping patients with seizures together, grouping patients with neurodegeneration and uh, MRI volumetric measurable measures together, uh, biomarkers. Those, I think that we're beginning to take this, the, this very complicated problem and break it down into a couple of ideas that I think um, are showing promise. And when you know you, you touch on things like volumetric uh, change, um, you know clearly every every patient is unique, and in many cases it is a unique drug we're talking about here. There is a lot of learnings, and you've got a patient that's deteriorating also and deteriorating relatively rapidly. Um, it does add, you know, when you look at the actual challenges of going in to treat those patients um, and the point of intervention, it adds a whole level of additional complexity and frankly, additional challenges. You know, you know, I've talked a lot about PKPD overall. How do you think about overall PD and, and assign that from a dosing standpoint to be able to up increase dose or change your actual dosing paradigm uh, to meet what is, if it's a child, is continuing to actually develop and grow over time. Um, and then track the outcomes. Um, are they continuing to deteriorate? Are they stabilizing? We're actually starting to see improvement in there across a broad range of different mutations, different diseases potentially. Um, M1C, the N1 uh, consortium, or uh, is is certainly one that you've been a big, I think, participant in helping to get together and start to address some of those. Are we? You, th that is one aspect of it. I think the other one, obviously, is on the regulatory side, and you know the the FDA have put some guidance out around it, and um, we're certainly seeing other groups, as as we've talked about before, you know, um, come more to the forefront and maybe a little bit more proactive, um, and have the bandwidth themselves to actually enable them to do that. In all fairness to them, um, and then also from a reimbursement standpoint, back to again how we think about reimbursement and getting costs down, not just from a development standpoint, but also from an actual cost of patient. I think, you know, the cost of some of these drugs is kind of, if we really want them to go out and be actually utilized more broadly, 
you know, we've got to figure out how we're going to bring the cost down without crippling the actual healthcare system uh, from a global standpoint. So that's a lot. Just general thoughts on that. How are you? How are you thinking? And how are you? What's your vision as you look to the future? What is the ultimate vision here? Yeah, I, I it, it is a lot, and and it, it, it is it's daunting at times. Um, but fundamentally, I think of all of those really important points that you touched on. I think that. Um, one has to cleave to uh, faith that um, that the community and the ecosystem will figure these things out. Um, that I don't know, we don't know yet what the right formula is going to be for reimbursement. We don't know yet what the right um, logistical setup is going to be required to make the manufacture and safety testing of these drugs as efficient as possible. You know, going from uh, using making one drug for treating tens of thousands of patients to making potentially tens of thousands of patients to treat tens of thousands of, of tens of thousands of, of drugs to treat tens of thousands right. of patients a completely non-trivial problem. Um, but but I I think what I think about is you know what can what can I do right I I am. Uh, I'm not a business professor. Uh, I'm not an entrepreneur. Um, I'm um, I'm an academic physician scientist, um, and I think that what I think is most important to me, and it, it, it's colored by what I think, uh, what levers I have around me. Um, I think what's mo most important to me is to try to set a medical, clinical, and ethical framework by which um, this type of work can go on. Uh, because I, I think that if we persist and stick with it long enough, we'll figure it out, mm -hmm. um, figure out what those answers are. But first we have to make sure that uh, our expectations are set appropriately. And in order to do that, I think that there is a need for this evolving cadre of NM1 investigators, because I'm very happily not the only one anymore, um, to explain to our colleagues um, what this is about, what it is and what it is not. And um, that is critical because setting communications and expectations right with physicians and ultimately, most importantly, with families um, to ask for patients, to ask for uh, patients with a C, uh, ask patients with a T for patients with a C, um, mm. to give us room to figure this out and to make sure that that they understand that this is a process that we're going to develop with them and not, you know, um, uh, a process that we're subjecting them to, right? right? I think that we will all need to ask for allowances for some uh, time to uh, try different approaches here um, and uh, ask for the grace of, of, of folks to realize that not every effort will be immediately successful. Um, I think that setting up that culture, establishing a, a culture of collaboration and data sharing, um, those are the things that um, that have driven me in setting up the N1 Collaborative and, and the academic projects that we've taken on. Which you know is is what's necessary for this really to become a reality. So you know we need multiple physicians across multiple geographies thinking about how best to solve these problems and actually do it in a collaborative fashion. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. You've been very generous with it so far. Um, you know, final one, 
vision for the future. So let's go 30 years from today. What does it look like? What do you want it to look like? Yep, 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 yep. So uh, I have a particular vision that that I've uh, become more comfortable sharing uh, uh, as you know as it's become you know, uh, a little bit clearer to me. I think um, to me, I feel that to a certain extent, this type of work is moving in a direction uh, that's a really it's something new. It, it's it's a hybrid of of what we're used to in drug development. Um, and a hybrid between that and a completely different type of uh, model for medical care, which we're also very used to, but we just don't usually think about it as pertaining to drugs, uh, which is the uh, personalized care that a physician offers to a patient. Mm-hmm. So in the former case, when we're talking about drug regu- regulation, most of our constructs are carried over from, uh, mo- from you know, monitoring drugs like uh, Tylenol at the, at the biggest or statins or, or drugs that might be given to, to millions of people. Um, and some of those constructs break down because at the, uh, that, that's at the end of the day when we're talking about some of these really devastating diseases and these very difficult um, uh, to treat conditions that are currently orphaned, um, these are highly individualized decisions that, um, that we don't think about regulation. We think about, uh, about fostering good communication between patients and um, their physicians. Um, so where am I going with this? I think that I think that this field is likely moving in a direction where we will need highly specialized industry expertise to refine processes for how individualized drugs are made mm-hmm. and quality controlled and delivered. And at the same time, we'll also uh, have uh, physicians who are using these drugs uh, in and delivering care with these drugs in models that are much more like uh, how transplant medicine works, where highly complicated medical interventions are being uh, offered to patients with very, very uh, serious diseases, many fatal diseases, um, that requires careful clinical judgment and close patient communication. And it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid that expertise comes from both sides. Um, and it's not as simple as a physician injecting a drug from a company into a patient, but there is a cadre of physicians who are well coached and have a lot of experience in navigating and clinically managing risk uh, and communicating clearly with individuals and families uh, that are working together uh, with these companies to to develop this as a type of uh, interventional medicine. Wow. How's that? Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) I think we would all benefit from that. That would be great. Um, We need a lot more people to go to medical school, I think. (laughs) Tim, it's been great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. Um, Congratulations on all you've done uh, and the impact that you're having on patients. It really is phenomenal. It's been phenomenal to uh, to watch you work and really start to build this whole area Uh, from the ground up. Um, So congratulations and all the success. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed exploring these ideas and uh, taking some risks and, and speculation as well too. That's always fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 